Well, listen, I don't know. I'm glad I was here today because I, I heard Bobby Borno lead out on a song. I mean, that's awesome. There you go, Bobby Borno. See, he can sing too, you know. And uh, and I don't know if you know it, but uh, but uh, uh, you know our worship leader Jeremy was up late last night uh, because he coaches for Allen High School and they had to win the state championship last night, so they got him another ring. That's awesome. Yeah, so uh, so we're glad you're here. But at least you didn't have to do game film last night, did you? Yeah, thankfully. All right, the season's over, and uh, but what a great way to end the season and. Uh, in all the preparation for this uh, this season of the year, um, uh, Deb came home with a story um, this week, and it plays right into one of the to the thing that I want to introduce you to, to today. Uh, these songs of praise that are in Luke's gospel surrounding the Christmas story, and so uh, so Deb, I'm going to ask my bride to come up. She just tells the story so much better than I do uh, that uh, she's going to she's going to share with you the opening illustration to my message. Here she is. Uh, I have no idea how he's fitting this in, but um, uh, I'll start with a slight disclaimer that we'll be saying here stays here, because um, it is a story about my dad, and my sweet father is 84, and he has some moments of confusion. So that's my little disclaimer to the story. But um, uh, their church uh, was having a service that they entitled a uh, little cringing on my part, Blue Christmas, which I just cringed at the title. The purpose of the service was to reach out and comfort those who have experienced some kind of loss in this year. And uh, so I made a decision to take my mom and dad. They wanted to go. It's at night. They don't travel at night, you know, to take them to that service and for us to go together. And so it was wonderfully uplifting and hopeful and filled with comfort and just a great service. And um, at the beginning, when the pastor got up to begin the service, um, she began with quoting, it's the most wonderful time of the year, with kids jingle belling and everyone telling you, be of good cheer. It's the most wonderful time of the year. And then she went on to just offer great words of hope and encouragement to those of us who have experienced loss to say, hey, you didn't feel like that, but you're hearing that everywhere. And it was just a beautifully comfortable, comforting service. So in the car going home, my mom's a little, my mom, uh, so she's a little emotional, which was appropriate and fine. Dad's real quiet, which is typical. And I said, Dad, what'd you think of that? And he goes, didn't think much of it. <laughs> uh, well, Dad, was there a particular part that you didn't like? Well, to start with, she thought she could sing. Uh, and dad is not a critical guy uh, daddy uh, daddy she she wasn't singing she was well, I didn't think so either <laughs> that, that she was just quoting yeah why did she start with that song I don't feel that way that was a terrible way to begin they said it was a blue Christmas I show up and I don't know what to expect and she starts there. well he has some confusion so I spent the rest of the evening explaining the really wonderful points that she did make following her quoting that song. So it ended up being great, but it did take a while for it to get through to my dad. <laughs> Thank you, dear. 
You see, uh, when we open Luke's gospel, uh, there are some characteristics of that gospel. Uh, it's uh, obviously uh, the place where we learn uh, from a woman's perspective, from Mary's perspective, the, about the events surrounded the birth of the Christ child. But uh, there are there are three pretty key characteristics of Luke's gospel, and and whenever you you dig in there, you'll find that uh, the commentators will say it's probably the most carefully chronological gospel that we have, and uh, uh, seeking to line out the events in in a very consecutive and chronological order. The second thing is that it is uh, it is a gospel of worship. Preeminently, it's the gospel of worship. And often, if you are paying attention, you'll notice that people are always falling at Jesus' feet in Luke's gospel. It's in Luke's gospel when, when Jesus, remember, um, you know, calls this great catch of fish out of the, the lake of Galilee that immediately Peter's response is what? He falls at Jesus' feet and says, Lord, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. He worships. And this is again and again in Luke's gospel. It's a gospel, it's a gospel of worship. And one of the ways that Luke introduces that idea is with the songs at the beginning of the gospel. We have the, the first words spoken after 400 years of silence to Zechariah in the temple. And immediately, you know, he is struck silent and he sits silent for nine months while, you know, while Elizabeth is pregnant, remember? And then when, when John the Baptist is born, who will be the forerunner and the prophet of, of the Messiah, when John, he, suddenly his lips are loosed and what does he do? He sings Zechariah's song. And, and then you, Mary goes to visit Zechariah and Elizabeth. And in the midst of that, Mary breaks into song, the Magnificent. Remember? And, you know, this beautiful song. And then on the, in the beginning of chapter 2, we have the angels in chorus singing and praising and worshiping. Glory to God in the highest, you know, just, just filling the, the, the air with, with song. And then... In the end of chapter 2, we have Simeon's song, and I'm going to read it. I'm not going to sing it because I don't know the melody. But we're going to read Simeon's song this morning and talk about him for a few minutes. So with that, then let's begin with chapter Luke chapter 2, with, begin with verse 22. And when the time of their purification, according to the law of Moses, had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him, that is the baby Jesus, to Jerusalem, to present him to the Lord. Now, what's going on here? You see, this there was Jewish ceremonial law that had to be observed here, and a woman was required by Jewish law to go through 40 days of purification after the birth of a child before she could re-enter into the temple. And they're going to take Jesus for the first time to the temple. And so this rite of purification, the ritual of purification, had to be completed. So that's what, that's what Luke is referring to is going on here. And this would indicate that Mary and Joseph, you see, are, are, are not only Jewish law-abiding citizens, but they have stayed over in Bethlehem, which is only about six miles from Jerusalem, so that they could fulfill this ritual, this law, so they could present the baby in the temple. So it's, uh, it's, this verse explains the timing and the reason so that they could present him, that is Jesus, to the Lord. Verse 23, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. 
every firstborn male consecrated. The word, the word comes from the Greek hagios, holy, to be, to be proclaimed or called holy. The old Hebrew word was kadash, to be set aside for the Lord. And, and it goes back to instructions in Exodus chapter 13. So this, in effect, is, is Jesus' baby dedication. We do that here at Willow Bend. Remember? We, you know, like, you know, sometimes more than once, but at least once a year, we, we bring a bunch of the parents up on stage and, and we, you know, and we challenge parents and we bless the children. We bless the babies. We dedicate them to Him. And so they have come to do that. And they bring the appropriate sacrifice or, you know, uh, uh, that was to be made along with that dedication, the price of, of his redemption, if you will, which was usually a, a young ram uh, from the flock, uh, uh, an unblemished lamb from the flock. So look at verse 24. And, and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law, a pair of, of doves or two young pigeons. Hmm, what's Luke telling us here? They don't bring the usual sacrifice. This is an important detail for us about the story of Jesus. According to the law, they bring and sacrifice two turtle doves. This was deemed appropriate for those who were the poorest of the poor in Israel. Luke is telling us that Jesus' roots were in abject poverty. Is what he's telling us. They couldn't afford a ram. They bring two turtle doves. I, I don't know about you, but I grew up in a family in West Texas where a month didn't go by that we weren't talking about how we were going to somehow make ends meet. Any of you grow up that way? Every dollar was stretched in the family that I grew up in. You know, as a matter of fact, while we lived in West Texas, my dad lost his business. And a lot of things changed, you know. And I don't know about you, but somehow my mother convinced me that, you know, that one of the best meals you could have was one of those whole bolognese. And my, and my mom, she would score that, you know, like with X's, and she would baste it with barbecue sauce. And I had that for my birthday meal for probably about eight or ten years growing up. You know, I'm so glad. I'm so glad to know that Jesus grew up in abject poverty. Because that just means, do you realize that on this planet, that 80% of this planet live just with the thought of trying to get food daily? We don't think about it, do we? You realize this makes the gospel meaningful and applicable on every place on this planet. Every place. Because Jesus knew what it was like. What it was to, to grow up that way. You see, what I really want to do is just kind of paint a picture of what this little family looks like. 
Because if you could get a picture in your mind of these central characters, then maybe you could, could really kind of understand what it is that Simeon's looking at when, these, when Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus walk into the temple that day. You see, there's Mary. She's likely a teenager, like 16 or 17 years of age. We usually paint Joseph just a little bit older. Maybe he's, he's early to mid-20s. Their clothes say anything but Saks Fifth Avenue, right? They say goodwill of Galilee. I mean, years ago, when we first moved to Frisco in the midst of of all this new home construction that was going on around us. And I'm driving home just a couple of days before Christmas, and I've been at the office and I'm working on a Christmas sermon, and I'm at a stoplight behind this beat-up old Ford pickup truck carrying framers, carpenters. They were headed home at dusk from a job site, and, and there's this young Hispanic Man, and I, I, I decided to name him Jose. <laughs> he had calloused hands, and he was clutching. You know, they, they, on the way home, they, they popped into some Seven Eleven or something like that, and, and he had a cup of coffee, and he was warming his hands around the coffee, and he had an old baseball cap, and and he had his hoodie pulled up and tightened, stringed down, where just the bill of the cap was was sticking out, and he's because there's no room in the cab, he's he's in the back of the pickup truck with all the carpenter tools, and I'm looking at him at this stoplight, and it's st- I'm stunned at the moment I realize that's Joseph, that's Joseph, that's what he looked like. And I had a moment there at a traffic light. And they arrive at the temple that day. And they're part of this steady stream of humanity, seekers in God's house. And they have no distinguishing marks about them. They're the commonest of the common. And they're carrying this little baby carefully and tightly wrapped. And how old is Jesus? He's about. 40 days old, so he's about six weeks. And I really want you to kind of get a picture of what that's like. What does a six-week-old baby look like? So I'm going to use my senior pastor license now and show you some some pictures of my grandson at six weeks. So here he is. That's what Jesus looked like. Now, I'm sure he didn't have blue eyes, okay? I get that. But, but he, you know... Was he yawning, you know, when Simeon looked at him for the first time? What was going on? Show us that next one. Yeah, maybe he was even asleep. But are you getting the picture? You know, he's, he's about eight pounds. He's in that cute and cuddly place where he's, he's making those expressions. And every time he makes, we interpret that as something that, you know, that... Oh, he's smiling, and he's probably pooping his diaper. (laughs) You know. And what do we do? In that phase of life, you know, when, that, it, when immediately we were looking for those family resemblance. Well, does, oh, he's got his mother's eyes. Oh, no, he's got his daddy's ears. You know how we do that? You see, and the question comes to me, how would you recognize the face of God? How how would you do that? What would that look like? 
What in the face of Jesus, of a little, of, of a little six-week-old little boy being carried into the temple would have somehow caught Simeon's attention? Verse 25. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon. He was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. Now, because of the context of the story, we, we paint him as, a, as an elderly gentleman. But the scripture says some wonderful things about him, doesn't it? Devout, righteous. There's a, the Holy Spirit is, is active and stirring in, in his life. But that phrase in the middle, lock onto that phrase in the middle. He was waiting. He was waiting. Waiting for the consolation of Israel. Waiting for the Messiah to come. You know what? That, that pretty much sums up all of recorded Hebrew history and all the prophecy and, and all the writing back to the, to the very beginning, the very first prophecy of the Messiah back in Genesis chapter 3. Remember, it's just right after the fall and, and the curses are being pronounced on Adam and Eve and then on the serpent. And when, and when, when God pronounces the curse on Eve, it says, He says, I will put enmity, Eve, between the seed of the woman, which in Hebrew life, you know, the woman was receptor of the male seed. Women, seed of a woman, it speaks of virginal birth. A miraculous conception. If you will, this, I will put enmity, enmity between the seed of the woman and the, and the serpent. And, and he will bite the heel of the woman's seed while the heel comes down to crush the head of the serpent. And the serpent is the form that Satan takes in the story. That's the first prophecy. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. To the fall, and we've been we're we're tracking that all the way through the Old Testament, and 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 and, and you take history, you know, of of and all mankind, and you begin to narrow it all down to one family, the lineage of one who will who will be the one through whom Messiah will come, and all Israel waits on pins and needles, watching and waiting, century after century after century, and then the prophets cease. About 400 B.C. And there's no one speaking. And it's just silent. Thick darkness. Thick silence. And then the Spirit of God begins to stir. And it begins to stir in Simeon along with Israel. But he's, he's, like, he's like all of Israel waiting. Waiting for that time to come and, and 
And truly the expectation has, has been molded and shaped so that they, they, they see Messiah as being a, a nationalistic military kind of leader, sort of a, a superhero that's going to sweep in and throw off the yoke of, of Roman oppression and domination and restore Israel's power and prestige and wealth. And, and that's why Simeon's words here, that's why his song is so important. Because it's so different from the expectation. Alfred Eidersheim, who's a great commentator and wrote much about the life and times at the time of Jesus. Listen to what he says. There was only one question in the, in, on the minds and the hearts of every Jew who was living at this time. Only one question. Why does Messiah delay his coming? Why is it taking so long? Can't he see what's happening? What's, when is he going to show up? Where is he? Why does Messiah delay his coming? Maybe you can relate. Anybody here relate? Maybe you've been waiting. Waiting for months. Maybe you've been waiting for years. Maybe you're like one of these young'uns down here and you just can't wait for school to be over. But maybe you've graduated and you're waiting for a job. Maybe, maybe you're in your 50s and 60s and you're out of work and you're waiting on a job right now too. Maybe you're waiting for the economy somehow to turn around. Maybe you're, you're single and you've waited and waited. You're hoping Mr. Wright or Ms. Wright's gonna show up, but you're still waiting. Maybe you're married and you're, you're waiting because you want to have children. Maybe you're waiting on a kid. Maybe you have kids and you're just waiting and hoping that they'll move out. Anybody waiting? Simeon, this old man, he was waiting and he was searching the near horizon because the Spirit of God had begun to stir in him that something was going to happen. And look at verse 26. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. The Messiah. How many times do you think Simeon prayed and asks, Lord, is it this one? He's camping out at the temple daily. You think he might have prayed it 10,000 times as people were streaming in and out? And every time the answer came, no, Simeon. Not this one. Until finally that day. And he prayed, Lord, could it be this one? Look at this poor family. Look at that little boy. And the Spirit of God said, yes. Yes, Simeon. Verse 27, and moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms 
And he praised God. He sang. He approaches Mary and Joseph. And he asks, would it be possible that I could just hold your newborn son for just a few minutes? And so they laid him in Simeon's arms. I, I really love, I love Rembrandt's painting of this. I'm not sure Simeon knows exactly what to do. You notice the hands? He, he wants to pray. You get it? Rembrandt is, he doesn't hold this baby tightly, but he holds him in awe and he's, he's, he's worshiping, he's praying, and his, his hands to me reflect that, that prayerful kind of pose. I love that. Now, Simeon says three things. Let me get them to you quickly. He says three things about the baby. Looking into the face of this little baby, Keep that in mind. What's he looking at? He's looking at a six-weeks-old baby. But he says three very important things. Number one, he says, he's all that I've been waiting for. He's all that we've been waiting for. His spiritual eyes are wide open. And we know he gets it. Why? Look at what he says. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. You got to keep in mind, Simeon is not going to be around much longer, right? He's getting ready to depart. He's elderly. But he has seen the fulfillment of what was promised him. He's holding Messiah in his arms. And he starts to sing. And, but he is not going to live to see Jesus teach the multitudes and speak in parables. He's not going to see Jesus heal the sick. He's not going to hear of Jesus still, stilling the storm or turning water into wine. He's not going to be around when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. He won't live, live to see Jesus put on trial. He won't see the skies turn black and the earth tremble and quake as all of creation mourns for the death of Jesus on the cross. He won't be around to see and to walk into the empty tomb three days later. Think about it. What changes for Simeon? He's going to wake up tomorrow morning. The Romans are still going to be there inhabiting Rome, right? Inhabiting Jerusalem. They're still going to be oppressed. He's still going to be old. He's still going to have all the financial pressures. He's going to have all the health issues that come with being elderly. I mean, pretty much his world pretty much stays the same except for what? He has peace. He has shalom. You know why? The answer is back at the beginning of the song, the first words. Sovereign Lord. You get it? He's not going to see everything that Jesus does. And his world may not immediately be shifting and 
changing. But he says, God is working his plan. God is sovereign and he's at work. I love it. It's my wife's favorite phrase. Dave, God knew we would be here. He's sovereign. He knows it all. And he's working his plan. Do you have that peace in your life? Have you seen with spiritual eyes who this Jesus is in such a way that you you understand that he holds your life in his hands, that he is sovereign, Lord, that nothing that is happening to you happens to you that has not first passed through his hands, and that he's working his plan, and the end result is, Good. All good. The best that it can be. But that's the first thing he says. He says, he's he's all that I've been waiting for. And now that I've seen him, I know God is sovereign. God is working his plan. I'm not worried about anything. Number two, he says he's the Savior that the whole world needs. Now that sounds kind of too familiar, doesn't it? (laughs) Oh yeah, oh yeah, I've heard that before. (laughs) A million times. Well, the familiar sound of that may cause you to miss the significance of what was taking place in that moment in the temple. You see, Simeon stands at this sacred place to the Jews. He's waiting for the consolation of Israel, for the Messiah of the Jews. He's awaiting their king, their Messiah, the one who will reestablish the Davidic line in the throne of David, the one who will deliver and lead Israel. And when he sees the child with the prompting of the Holy Spirit, he begins to praise God for sending a Savior, not just for the Jew, but also for the Gentile. He's the Savior that the whole world needs. For my eyes, he says, have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for the revelation of the Gentiles and for the glory of your people, Israel. That's everybody. Gentiles plus Jews. Gentiles, that's every other nation, every other ethnic group, every other people group out there. A light for everyone. Now, I, I love Ron Vessiani's painting. Here's, here's Ron Vessiani's painting of, of, of Simeon. Look. Look at him. Just in ecstasy and in worship and in praise. Isn't that great? Don't you love that? Look carefully at the background. What do you see? The whole world. The globe. You see? Do you see it? Yeah. Wonderful. 
You see, Luke's gospel is not only the most chronological gospel, it's not only the gospel of worship, but it's the gospel to the, that aimed at the Gentile, at the whole world. It's the universal gospel. And I use that not in, in, in the sense of, you know, that bad theology of universalism, but just saying that Jesus is the, Jesus is the savior that the whole world Needs And so Luke carries that theme all the way through his gospel. When you compare, like, you want to have some interesting reading, just go read the genealogies for Christmas this year. Read Matthew's genealogy. Matthew goes back to Abraham, the father of the Jewish people. When, when Luke traces the genealogy of Jesus, where does Luke trace it back to? All the way to Adam, to the garden, to first man. The father of all mankind. Because Jesus is the savior that the whole world needs. And it was a big deal that Simeon, waiting for the consolation of the Lord, saw a much bigger picture. We need to see that bigger picture. He's holding this little harmless child. And he says, he came for every one of us here. And he came for everyone else out there. Last thing. This is the tough one. Simeon says he is the revealer of every human heart. Verse 33, the child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him, about Jesus. They were just soaking that in. Man, what a blessed moment for them. And then Simeon's going to speak a blessing to them. Now listen to the blessing. Are you ready? And Simeon blessed them and he said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against. So that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul, too. Thanks, Simeon. (laughs) When I read that, it reminded me of another text in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. We often read it in the context of speaking of the Word of God, the inspired word, the, the book that we have, you know what I'm saying? But when you, when you pause to consider and open up your frame of reference to include the fact that the, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God, God is the same with God and created all things and the Word became flesh. Listen to Hebrews chapter 4.12 and think in terms of the living Word of God, the, 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 the living, the book always sheds light and points us to where? To the, to, the, to the Christ who is alive, right? So listen, for the Word of God is living and active. Sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing 
to the division of the soul and of the spirit and of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Simeon says he will be a revealer of what's really in the heart of man. Now, folks, you and I know that in this culture, it gets a little more difficult all the time, doesn't it? To speak the name of Jesus. Don't stop speaking it. The movement is, and it will continue. You know, we are going to take the nativity scenes off of all public property and out in front of the library, the courthouse. That's going to happen. That doesn't mean we can't put them on our lawn, on private property. It may get tougher. He will be a sign that will be spoken against. You get that, don't you? When Jesus called you to be a disciple in the inaugural address, remember, he talked about how do you relate to, to God? Well, you, you know, poor in spirit, you know, you mourn and, and broken over sin and, and you become teachable and submissive and you begin to hunger and thirst for things that are righteous. How do you, how do you relate to the world? He said, well, in the world, you're, you're going to be merciful and you're going to be transparent and sincere about your faith. You know, blessed are the pure in heart. And, and you're going to be peacemakers, not peaceful people. You're going to do the tough, hard work of making peace. Oh, and by the way, you're going to be persecuted for doing the right thing. Count on it. Blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness sake. You see, you know, you identify with Jesus. Jesus was a lightning rod, folks. You know, he didn't come just to be a, a great teacher. And a really nice guy who loved people and had a lot of wonderful things to say. You know, the things that Jesus said himself, said himself, set him up for confrontation because he was in the face of all of the religious establishment of his day. And, and he say, he spoke it so plainly that they did what with him? They nailed him to a cross. Simon says, Simeon says to Mary, Mary, a sword will pierce your very soul. You're going to suffer because of this little six-week-old child that you hold in your hands. So Hebrews 4.12 says he is the discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Now listen, verse 13, the next verse, it's in, it's in first person. It's a first person pronoun. It says, verse 13, and no creature is hidden from his sight. The words sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must all give account. And Jesus makes it plain that in that final day, there will be only two groups of people. There will be those who may have done fabulous works, serving the poor, 
no telling what they've done. To whom Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you. And to others he will say, welcome, come in. Because you know me. He is that kind of lightning rod. I have the privilege, almost every time I preach one of those messages on John 10, you know, from John 10, I am the way, the truth, and life, and I make it clear that Jesus is the only way, I get fired in an email. Because in this culture, we want everything to be just smooth and easy and tolerant and, you know, whatever. Man, don't, man, don't drive a stake in the ground. Simeon saw Jesus as he really is. He will be the one who will discern the thoughts and the intents of every heart. He will either live in the heart or be pushed out. Wow, that's a hard message. The child.